this is the Interledger bi-weekly call, Wednesday, 8th of January, first call of the year. And uh, welcome everyone back from holidays. Those of you who took a holiday, um, welcome back. Um, the calls are being recorded and the recordings are available on the site. If you're looking for previous calls, uh, the site is interledger.org. And the agenda for today has been um, has been set up on the forums. If you visit forum.interledger.org, you'll find a post for each uh, for, e for each call that we have. And the post is put up ahead of the call and anyone who has um, proposals for agenda items can post them to there. So today's call has um, two agenda items from David and from Sabine. Uh, the first one, uh, David's interested in chatting about open payments. Uh, and Sabine, a uh, quick note on publishing the calls as podcasts. Anyone on the call have any other agenda items they'd like to add now? Okay. Um, we're already up to 17 or 18 people on the call, but uh, don't be shy to um, to make yourself heard if you have something to say. Um, David, you wanted to talk about open payments. Um, I've been doing a bit of work on that since coming back, while specifically on getting some more stuff out there for people to read. Um, and I see Matt on the call and Sabine and Don, we all had a chat about this earlier today and Brandon who's posted a number of issues. So uh, I think everyone who's been very involved up to now is on the call, maybe a good time to get into some of the, the issues. Um, what did you have in mind in particular, David, that you wanted to discuss? Hey, yeah, thanks Adrian. Um, to discuss the, the flows and the use cases. So uh, at the moment I, I'm just trying to graph like when you would use an invoice versus when you would use a mandate. And it's like, at least in the Rafiki demos, um, for, for use cases I would have imagined would have been an invoice, like e-commerce, it sort of looks like a mandate is being used. So uh, I'm just trying to get some clarity there. Um, and then I would also like to talk about just like path forward for um, like standardization maybe. So whether that's going to happen on uh, openpayments.dev or if we want to move that into some kind of GitHub repo or something like that. I, I think um, I'm in a position now where I'd like to start contributing more to open payments. And so maybe the current process is fine. I'm happy to keep the place there, but I'm just going to talk more about that. Too. Okay, cool. Um, I guess, let, let me start by saying for, for anyone who um, hasn't looked at this before, um, at a very high level, the whole, the idea of the open payments protocol is to uh, establish a way that wallets can um, communicate with one another to set up a payment. So obviously once it comes time to make a payment with Interledger, that's pretty easy if you've already know if you already know things like the amount you want to send you've got authorization from the user that they're happy to authorize the money being sent um you know the address of the remote entity that you want to connect to you've got the shared secret to use for the stream connection all those kind of things um so the whole purpose of open payments is establishing that stuff it's kind of a successor to SPSP, but with open payments we're trying to uh build on existing standards as much as possible. So we're building on OAuth 2. Um, our plan is to also build on some open ID stuff for identity exchange, but we haven't really got there yet. Uh, and, um, and also to do a lot of this stuff, call it in the application layer. So it's, it's before you even establish your stream connection and move money around, um, you would do the open payments interactions. And so building on OAuth, means the easiest way or the, the most sensible or the way that makes the most sense is to use resources. Because um, OAuth is all around, you know, giving somebody access to a resource or permissions to do stuff with a resource. So the resources we defined are mandates, and invoices and sessions. And basically the idea is you would use kind of straightforward REST 
calls to create those resources either on your own wallet or on the counterparty's wallet. And then you would kick off an open payment sort of interaction around those resources. And that might mean that if you want someone to pay you, you create an invoice on your own system and then you submit the URL of that invoice to them. And that's basically asking them to send you the money. Um, but the if you want to pull money from somebody as opposed to asking them to send it to you, you need to create a mandate on their system and they need to get the user, the owner of that account to authorize that mandate. So those are both mandates and invoices are kind of common um, concepts in payments already today. We're just um, trying to make really simplified sort of resource representations of them as part of this. So today a mandate is something like you would, if you create a debit order, um, in South Africa we call it a debit order, I'm not sure, I think it has slightly different names in other countries, but basically if you give permission for someone to debit your bank account every month, let's say for some sort of subscription, um, the what that's doing is you're creating a, a debit mandate at your bank um, and that debit mandate is an instruction to your bank that you are allowing that person to pull money from your account. So it doesn't actually instruct the bank to send their money. It just instructs the bank that they have permission to take the money. Then um, what we explored was if you wanted to then pull the money. So now let's say, David, you and I are uh, interacting and I want to pull money from your account. So I'd create a mandate at your wallet. Um, which defines exactly like how much money I want, how often I want to pull it and so on. And the reason I'd create that resource first is then I go through an OAuth flow um, where you have to consent to me actually executing on that mandate. So that's, that's where the OAuth piece comes in. Once the resource is created, then you give consent using standard OAuth flows to that mandate. You kind of authorize the mandate. But now all that's done is instruct you, your wallet or whoever's managing your account that you're okay with me pulling the money. For me to actually pull the money, the way we had originally thought about it was I would connect via stream to your bank or your wallet and your wallet would start sending me money. But in implementation, that's kind of difficult because what it means is when we establish the stream connection, your wallet has to somehow be smart enough to recognize that the credentials we used for that stream connection tie back to the mandate and then also have to figure out exactly how much to send this time round. So what, we, what we're proposing now is we would create an invoice on our side. So if I want to get money from you, I create an invoice and I submit the URL of that invoice to your wallet but under the mandate that was was pre-created. So the mandate is the authorization for me to pull from your system and the invoice exists on my system, which defines how much needs to be sent to me and what credentials, stream credentials and stuff to use to do it. And so that's the sort of interaction. Um, the one, last point I'll make is you talked about like the online checkout using mandates and that being surprising. The reason we did that is to try and replicate the experience for um, of, of like paying with a card, which is a pool payment. So the idea there is, um, and, and obviously this is just one of the possible ways this could be done. The idea is that if the merchant wants complete control of the flow, so um, the merchant wants to be able to get the payment authorized, in other words, go through the flow of you authorizing the mandate, and only then pull the money, then using an invoice doesn't work because if they just submit an invoice um, and the authorization happens on top of that invoice, then perhaps in the interim something, you know, that's, that's a complex user interaction. In the meantime, something might happen. The stock I was selling you is no longer available, whatever the case may be. But basically, if it's me submitting an invoice, if the merchant submitting an invoice to the user's wallet, that's getting authorization and asking the wallet to send the money all in one step. Uh, and often what merchants want is they want authorization. So they want like a guarantee or a, a, a indication from the user's wallet that they're going to get paid. So that's the mandate. 
And then separately, once everything's set up, so the stock is ready to ship or the whatever the case may be, um, the details of the subscription have been verified or some other process might have happened. Only at that point then do they actually pull the money, in which case they would submit the invoice against that mandate and they don't need any further user interaction. So it's a much lower ch chance of it's now of the payment now failing because it's already pre-authorized. So that's the thinking. It, it doesn't have to go that way, but that was our our expectation was that merchants like would like that flow. And so we wanted to replicate it. Yeah, that's great. I think um, in, in the US at least, um, there, there are legal requirements around not capturing funds until you there's like a, I think it's a 72 hour window around when you ship a product. So if you can imagine if you, you know, buy something on Amazon on Monday, but it doesn't ship till Friday, they actually can't collect money from you until whatever the 72 hour window would be around Friday. Yep. So I like, I like the flow. Um, and it, it's, yeah, I wouldn't, <clears throat> wouldn't call it a preference. I would, in the US at least, it's probably a legal requirement. So that's, that's all good. It sounds like, um, it sounds though like the invoice and the mandate, um, like they're being used together. So I guess I'm wondering at the interledger layer, who initiates the stream? Um, when a merchant, let's say, submits an invoice to a, a mandate that was previously authorized, it sounds like the wallet will make a push payment to the yeah. merchants. Okay. Yeah, so our thinking, our thinking was that it would always be the sender that initiates the outgoing connection. It's just a lot easier, at least from what we've seen, it seems that the implementation of the stream components, the sender and receiver, will be a lot easier if that's always the case. Because yeah. stream is always going to exist, your stream components, your sender and receiver are always going to exist with some internal interface to some sort of business logic, some sort of application layer. And if your stream sender is always the one that is initiating connections and sending money because of something like an invoice was submitted or whatever, as opposed to the stream receiver needing to accept connections and then interface with business logic or application layer stuff, figure out that actually this incoming connections for a pull payment now I need to send money back. Um, yeah. It's just a lot simpler that way. Um, and, and looking at the way people are scaling stream, um that just seemed like a, a more logical way of doing it and, it and it's a nice clean separation then between your interledger layer and this application layer like everything is set up using open payments and only you know only once like all of the pieces are in place authorizations are done uh in the future some sort of identity maybe is even exchanged at that point then you actually do the open the stream connection and start sending funds so it seems like that flow can be used for both what we'd imagine is a traditional like e-commerce or you know coffee shop type invoice where it's like I'm paying for one thing, but it seems like we could also use that flow for a subscription. Is that is that accurate? Like the same flow applies to both use cases? Yeah. Or are they yeah. Yeah. So, so the mandate, correct. The mandate could be for multiple payments, future payments, um, or it could just be for a one-off payment. Um, so, you know, the way Sabina designed this sort of mandates definition makes it really flexible. You can, you can do any of those. Um, I, do, I do think there'll be use cases and this is some feedback we got. Like we've shown this to quite a few people, you know, wallets, um, people sort of in the payments industry, traditional payments industry. And we have had feedback to say we should also support the idea of just a quick one-off payment where, um, so maybe the coffee shop is an example where, um, you know, you want to get paid, you just give me an invoice and I submit it into my system and the system pays you. Like that, that's also a, a possibility, but it means the implication of that is that when you submit the invoice to my system to ask to be paid, my system is going to have user interaction with me. It's going to take me through a flow to uh, authorize that payment potentially. Um, so it may be that like it's a really small amount and I pre-authorized small amounts under a certain, you know, uh, under a certain threshold to certain people, whatever. Um, but like that's, that's also a use case. I think it's a, we should probably think of a way to differentiate them in the, um, in the docs and describe them. 
Um, yeah. And one thing I didn't say earlier, which I think is worth mentioning, uh, unfortunately, the docs are probably like even a month maybe behind in terms of the thinking we've had. I would say the most accurate representation of open payments is the actual implementation. Um, I'm trying over the next week or two to catch that up. That's sort of my focus. And and from early Feb, like most of the team in Cape Town will be back on this full time. So um it's just uh yeah unfortunately we've, we've got a bunch of other stuff we're trying to wrap up and, and so it's it's the documentation side and explanations and things are a little bit behind so i apologize is that repo open um i don't i don't know that yeah. i've seen that much can you paste yeah, it in for... i will do that um matt you matt's got his hand up matt's using the using the features <laughs> yes matt. Uh, yeah i just want to jump in um just a quick one. The current way the invoices are set up actually do doesn't, it like they can be used in both make ways and there's no need to change or differentiate them within the spec because if I give you an invoice, you can pay that out of band because I've given it to you and you would be expected to be paying out of band. So the idea would be if like I give you an invoice and you do a get against it to get stream credentials and you pay it, you knowing that the party, you're expecting the other party to pay it. And then whoever you, whoever you are using, your wallet, the pay, like the payer, they, their, their system can design how they would do that interaction, whether that be a QR code or a URL or a quick link, it doesn't really matter. Um, that, like, that's just the, the thinking there. The, I, that's why the separation of invoices and mandates actually exists because they are fundamentally different. Um, invoices are standalone. The nice thing with mandates is you can submit invoices to them to be paid by the mandate or within the scope of the mandate. Cool, that, that's great. So if I guess my takeaway from both of your comments is that like open payments doesn't really have the conception of a full payment anymore. Like the, the way you would sort of achieve full payment functionality is like, invoice submitted to mandate and mandate side pushes. Is that correct? That's, that's how we're thinking about it. And, you know, we, I guess, you know, Matt's probably the closest in terms of having implemented stream components. Uh, so I'd be interested to hear from anyone else who's had to implement stream. Um, but our thinking on the back of that was that that was a better way to do it. Um, rather than trying to recognize incoming connections as a receiver and then set your send max based on like, is this connection from someone who wants to receive money as opposed to someone who wants to send? I have a quick question. It seems like with both of those approaches though, um, whether like the recipient is initiating the stream connection to the sender and then the sender starts sending money through that connection, or there's this invoice submission, and then the sender initiates more of a push payment um, in it for the pull payment use case. Um, it seems like that seeds a lot of control over the payment to the sender. Um, so I'm wondering like how rates and fees kind of work in that case. Um, and it, it also seems like that kind of limits like more streaming-esque use cases since there's like, it's, it seems like more latency to like, there's a lot more setup overhead um, in, the, in, in, the, in the whole payment flow. Particularly, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about this as opposed to like loopback where the uh, recipient would just, you know, the recipient initiates a stream connection effectively to themselves and just sends packets to the sender mm -hmm. and are forwarded uh, back. So Matt, Matt, you, Matt implemented Loopback. I don't know, Matt, if you have comments uh, there. There's a couple know, of people I, with I, their hands up, but go for it. Yeah, let me jump into this. Uh, Kincaid, great question, because this is a, is, is a fundamental user experience like issue. The, the thinking here is that the sender is the owner of the money. So, we our thinking is that then controlling the rates is actually the best thing remember the way we've defined the mandates is that the mandate can be in different currencies and the exchange rate of the, the, the underlying 
account that the money is being pulled from might not be in the currency of the mandate. For example, let's say I've got a dollar, like a, a South African rands based account, but I'm doing like e-transactions that are like for Netflix. Netflix receives dollars. They don't, they don't charge us in rands. Okay. So the mandate would be in dollars. Now my wallet decides on the exchange rate of that. If, if, and that's currently how the card systems work. So like if the, the merchant doesn't agree with the fees that are coming to it, it's for them to decide how to price that. But the idea is that the pricing in the system should work out that it shouldn't be high enough. Like if you see that a certain wallet is giving really bad rates, the chances are you're going to probably start penalizing customers from them. So I don't think there's, there's an incentive to do that. I would agree there's some other use cases where loopback might make sense, but I think that's out of scope for open payments um, and what we're trying to achieve. Like in our mind, I think initially for open payments, we just want to create a really low friction way for application developers to start building basic use cases for sort of the cases we're seeing right now. Um, the, the complication you're seeing is like, if I introduce somebody to Interledger, we're gonna, you, you start explaining a hundred different things and then the, you, you've lost them. If we can limit the scope of what they're talking about, that just being like maybe open payment APIs and we can build the wrappers around those, around stream and everything, package it to, to developers, I think we're gonna have far more success in pushing this to, to developers to start implementing. Okay, but that, 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 that's helpful, I think. So it's, it, it seems like there's not, it's less of a technical reason for not kind of, you know, kind of pursuing that approach, but rather, um, you know, more around how we want to frame, you know, market, you know, uh, wrap the protocol to kind of end user application developers, etc. Um, I would differentiate though, like between the the protocol, the connectors speak, like the the wallets themselves are, um, or the the providers themselves are interacting uh, versus kind of how the wallets are interacting with those things. So if a wallet is using, you know, is um, you know using some third party hosted provider. You know, and those and that provider uses loopback to complete the payment with another provider. The wall, the the provider could still be exposing some nice kind of much simpler API uh, to that wallet. Is that is that correct? Correct, but, but correct. But the tricky part there is you basically might not be interoperable. The risk is that, and this what is what happened when we started implementing implementing our own applications. You get to the point where you everybody's trying to do non-normative APIs. Open API, like the open payments, we're trying to get to the point where like you, like we don't have that many people hosting wallets and, but we have lots of application developers because the reality is that's what um, Interledger is right now. I mean, we've got like three wallets online currently um, with maybe the hope to have five or six by sort of mid, mid, middle of this year. Um, realistically speaking, if we can get them to implement these APIs, we can have hundreds of applications um, rather than the other way around. Um, so yeah, it's not a technical issue. It is a user thing. I mean, we're happy to, to, to challenge that, but I do think that developer experience is something we definitely need to try and nail. Yeah, yeah, I, I, definitely I, I, agree we need to improve the developer experience. I, I'm still a little bit question, like I still kind of question like whether that actually complicates the developer experience, but uh, so like to... I'll add there that like early on when we talked about loopback, like right way at the beginning when Mikhail and I were proposing the idea, like probably a few years ago, uh, one of the biggest pushbacks um, we got from people like Evan um, were, was that we were starting to sort of bleed across the layers a little that like you were at your application layer needing to think about like interledger layer stuff. And the, you know, my argument at the time was that like that was okay because it was just making everything that much simpler and giving application control. But the reality, like as Matt discovered in, in implementing some of this stuff is as, as few components as possible should have to deal with interledger layer stuff because it's complicated and difficult. And it's actually, you can't run interledger layer components on anything that's not permanently online and connected to the network. So 
you could now like the way we've set this up is you could write an application that is able to send and receive money and it only needs to be online at the time it does those things. So all of the interactions for open payments are just regular calls over the internet to other people on the internet. And then when it comes time to do the payment, you submitting like an invoice URL or, or something to your wallet. Uh, so the assumption here, of course, is this is all like custodial. Um, if you want to host your own sort of wallet, you would be fulfilling the you would be fulfilling the role of the sort of open payment service. Um, if you want a sort of non-custodial setup. But the intent here is that in exchange for running in, in, in rather than running interledge infrastructure yourself, you, um, you use OAuth to have, you know, keys and things and secure access to a third party who is custodying your funds and then a standard way to get them to, to send money to someone else or pull money from someone else. Um, and we don't have, you know, each provider going off and defining their own APIs on top of um, ILP. So that's that's one other, like, you know, one other reason why I think it's important to sort of separate those layers. Um, I want to give Sabine and David a chance to say something. They've both been waiting. Um, Sabine? Yeah, thanks. Um, I was wondering if you have thought about uh, how the flow would look like in Codius. I guess, question for Brandon. Um, as of right now, I'm approaching Codius as, I guess, kind of with the assumption that the easiest way that someone today to do an internet ledger payment is with web monetization. Um, so that, that would mean that, uh, you, you would be up both, both deploying a Codius workload and consuming being a user of one in a browser and paying with a web monetization provider. Um, so these payments would be happening uh, with either the, the sessions API or whatever that ends up shaping out to be for how open payments supports web monetization. But that will hopefully change in the future when uh, there, there are more interledger wallets. It is easier to pay using interledger outside of web monetization. Yeah, so, so I've given it a bit of thought as well, Sabine, and, and I think for Codius as for anything else, um, the experience that I would love us to get to is that if you use any application that wants to send or receive money on the Interledger, the first thing you'll do is give it your payment pointer. So let's say I download an app on my phone or I connect to a Codius host the first thing I'll do is say my payment pointer is, you know, whatever, github.com slash Adrian. And immediately that will allow that app or that Codius host to contact GitHub and say, hey, I want to be able to do stuff on behalf of Adrian using his Interledger account. I want to send and receive Interledger payments, whatever the case may be. And immediately GitHub will take me through an OAuth flow where it will allow me to give consent to that app or that Codius host to pull money from my account or even receive money into my account. So maybe all the app does is it gets permission to be able to generate new payment pointers um, for my account, or maybe it just has permission to share my uh, identity with other applications so that for compliance reasons, whatever. But the goal here is that like the payment pointer becomes the, the sort of, the starting point for everything. So, you know, the first thing you do when you download the app, put in your payment pointer, the app contacts your wallet, you go through a consent flow, and now that app is able to do stuff with your wallet. Um, and I think what will be really interesting is taking all of these flows and testing how well they work if, you know, the user hosts their own wallet or, or somehow like people want to do sort of um, non-custody funds, would that work and, and how easy can that work? And also, um, how easily it would, how easy it would be to do things like host uh, open payments endpoints for yourself on Codius, for example, uh, and stuff like that. But yeah, I think Codius um, could definitely leverage a lot of this stuff. But 
what we need to do is is be very specific about like what are the use cases are we paying the courteous host is the courteous host able to pull money from our account as it needs it or are we prepaying things like that um, and i think most of these things um, fit into the existing use cases pretty neatly thank you david you still got your hand up did you want to uh, add something more uh, yeah, I, do. I have a few more questions uh, back on the cool. previous topic this time. So, go ahead. Um, so, I just I wanted to clarify the the pull, <clears throat> or I guess paying a merchant case. So, to pull to pull money, a merchant creates an invoice. Like so, you're in the flow. Like I'm visiting Rafiki um, shop. And I see the hamburger fast food order, and I click checkout. That redirects me to my wallet. Does does the does the mandate get created right then? And and then I'm like immediately taken to like the, the proof, or like what is the exact flow there? So depending on how the merchants implemented, if they want to use mandates, then um, I'm trying to remember. Okay, so with the, with the eats, you put in your payment pointer, right? So at that yeah. point, the merchant contacts your wallet and says, I want to, and it discovers the endpoints that are available to do things like create mandates, invoices, and so on. It'll create a mandate for the amount that it wants to debit, but that mandate isn't authorized yet. Then it will contact the um, authorization endpoint. So this is now standard OAuth of that wallet and request um, the scope of the authorization will be the mandate that it's just created. And it will say, I wanna do this, you know, mandate. And then it's now the OAuth flow. So the user gets redirected back to their own wallet where they see a consent screen that contains the details of the mandate that the merchant has created. Um, the user consents. And so in return, the, um, the merchant now has an access token for that mandate. So they can now do things with that mandate um, using that access token. So what they would do is then create an invoice on their system for the amount that they want to be sent to them. And they will post that invoice against that mandate using that access token. So they effectively creating an invoice against the mandate. Um, and they have permission to do that because they have the access token that allows them to do things with that mandate. And, um, the invoice will be giving the um, user's wallet. When the user's wallet hits the invoice URL, they will get the stream credentials they need to then send the money to the merchant. Okay. So that's it. That's, I, I, I can't, David, I mean, sorry, um, Matt can confirm yep. whether that's exactly how it works now. That's how we've discussed it working. Uh, that's the desired state we think it should be. Um, I'm not sure if it's 100% cool. working like that yet. Okay, I think that's, I mean, that's probably a, a fine enough resolution for this call and, and my purposes. Um, I, I guess just to, to clarify, I'm thinking of, of uh, the payloads that get exchanged. And so um, on Rafiki.shop at least, the the demo kind of like pauses at the intermediate phases and like shows you the the bearer tokens and the identity tokens and stuff like that. And inside of there, it has an invoice which has like the details of my order. So it'll say, you know, I'm paying twelve dollars for like fast food at Eats or whatever. Um, I guess I'm just trying to disambiguate like what I would conceive of as an invoice, which would be like. I've got two hamburgers and it costs twelve dollars versus this thing we're calling an invoice in open payments. Um, are they the same, or are those two concepts a little bit different? I think they're the same. If you if you like, we're not interested in line items. Um, I mean, there may be a desire in the future to add line items to the invoice, but for us, the concept of an invoice is I create an invoice like I would on my own, like if I log into zero today on for my company um, and I have customers and I want them to pay me, the first thing I do is I go into zero and I say, create an invoice for this customer. And then I send the invoice to that customer. 
So for us, that it's the same concept. I want you to pay me. So I create an invoice on my system that details how much you must pay and how you must pay it. So it's got, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be some stream credentials there. And then I send you the URL um, of that invoice. So you can access it and see how much I pay Adrian and how much must I pay and so on. Um, and if that's all I do, then the rules around whether you're going to pay it or not are completely decided by your wallet. Like all I've done is give your wallet instructions that say, I want you to pay me. Um, or at least I think, I, I think you owe me some money and here's the details of how to pay me. Um, your wallet then decides, well, like, is this being, is this being submitted against a mandate? In other words, it was pre-authorized and then does the mandate cover the value of this? If so, then cool. Well, let's just send the payment. If not, then I probably need to check with the user, the owner of the account. Hey, um, do you want to pay this invoice? Uh, and so like the, we're trying to keep sort of the pieces as simple as possible and allow you to support different use cases by wiring them together differently, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the invoice, I think it's from an accounting perspective, it's an invoice. Um, maybe what, people understand in the real world sometimes of it as an invoice, like a paper thing or an email with line items and stuff. Yeah. Uh, sure. The JSON could contain those details, but it doesn't have to. Okay. Um, and then, so that, that's great. Thanks for, for the explanation. Um, two more questions. Um, really one and a half. Uh, it looks like we're using open ID connect, which I think, you know, reading for the open payments website, is a good idea and it seems to be kind of inspired from um, some of the PSD2 or P2, you know, the open, um, sorry, the European payments uh, initiatives that are going on. So I, I like the uh, yeah. impetus to use open protocols. I'm wondering um, if maybe this hasn't really been thought yet, but in OpenID Connect, they, they originally wanted to use email addresses. And so like the community, like, you know, this is going back like 10 years, had a lot of churn and argument and they, they landed on this account URI as the thing that kind of all these other primitives map to, right? So you can map um, an email address, you can map, I guess, a phone number now, like you can map all these things. But fundamentally the OpenID Connect list seems to be built on that primitive at the standards level. But we want to use, I think, payment pointers and probably have the identity subject be, I think, the payment pointer. But I, I'm wondering what the thoughts are that are there. And it looks like in Rafiki, at least, the subject of the identity tokens that are passed around in OpenID Connect is just the, you know, like the, the user ID, the database identifier. Any so you, thoughts and yeah, there? Yeah, so, yeah. so I totally agree with your hypothesis on OpenID Connect. I have kind of the same hypothesis that one of the failures of the discovery for OpenID Connect is trying to use first email addresses and second account URIs. Um, and that's why most people who actually use OpenID Connect don't use it as OpenID Connect. They use it as login with Google or login with Facebook. So you completely bypass discovery and you go straight to the IDP. Um, so I think that's firstly, that's impractical in the world of payments. Like if I want to connect you with whoever's hosting my account, um, let's hope we never get to a point in time where there are need two or three people providing accounts on the internet for money. Um, that'll, that'll suck. Um, so let's assume, you know, it's impractical to just have a whole list of all of the account providers. And um, I was saying this to Sabine and, and um, Matt and Donna earlier today, I've seen a few demos, open banking demos, which do do that. Uh, and the user experience terrible. So basically you want to pay via um, separate credit transfer. And so you're checking out online and they say, you know, okay, um, to pay by separate credit transfer, pick your bank. And they have, they have to give you a list literally of every single possible bank that you could be sending the money from, which is you know, fine if it's domestic and you're only in the UK and there's only 11 of them and it's kind of okay. But if it ends up being you know, SEPA, as in the whole of Europe, you're gonna have to pick from you know, hundreds. And so then they like introduce a whole new complex like payment initiation role and stuff like that. I think if we can 
really like um, uh, get consensus around using payment pointers for this use case. It just works really well. Like discovery on the web works with URLs and payment pointers, I think, make a lot of sense um, because they're effectively URLs. So you can do things like make them into QR codes and stuff like that. Um, the nice thing about the format is like it's unambiguous. We're not overloading something else like emails. Um, and, and you can also, you can extract kind of an origin out of it, which is what we do for the OAuth metadata stuff. So if I give you a payment pointer and you just take out the host portion uh, and you use that to go and discover like all the service endpoints for that host, um, that's standard OAuth server metadata discovery. So that's, that's pretty cool that we can leverage that. But then the rest of the payment pointer makes it unique for that host and it, it identifies the payment pointer as being one that belongs to me. But it can also be like the way I kind of envision this happening is that if I sign up, let's say I sign up for a wallet, um, I go to GitHub, I get a wallet, GitHub give me a payment pointer that like is a vanity pointer. It's github.net slash Adrian. And that's my easy to remember payment pointer that if I'm logging into apps or I'm, you know, giving it to someone to send me money, it's really easy for me to remember, transcribe, type in, etc. But they would also have a facility for me to generate as many random other payment pointers as I want. Um, and I can use that to preserve my privacy. So I can give someone a gatehub.net slash huge UUID payment pointer and gatehub knows that that's mine, but they don't give that away. So the person I give it to just knows that it's at GitHub and that should be enough in terms of compliance for them, knowing that like GitHub are um, regulated, GitHub have done their KYC on me. Uh, and so they don't need to know actually who I am specifically. At least that's the assumption right now. So there's kind of the, you, you kind of cover both bases, I think with payment pointers. In terms of like OAuth itself and the subject of the token, um, I'm scratching my brain to remember exactly how we've done that and why, but totally open to suggestions on the sort of the most correct way to do that. I think the best way to do it is that the subject is the payment pointer. Um, but I may be wrong on that. Do you remember Matt or Don, like why we did that or how we've done that? Um, I think, well, it depends, but I don't think in open, I, I sorry, I, for the OAuth, I don't think you have to specify a subject for it. Um, remember, that's right. Did, sorry, you, you, you're right. There, there's an ID token and an access token. We should differentiate between the two. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, we're giving back, uh, I think with the newest way we're doing it, we are giving back like access tokens more so than ID tokens. We're not, I think we're more going towards not being really open ID and more towards just OAuth um, being that it simplifies a lot of things. We're not really using anything in open ID um, anymore. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so can I like, can I caveat that quick to say we haven't done anything there yet, but we have talked about how open ID would be kind of the, the way you plug some of the regulatory stuff and say, you know, who am I transacting with and, um, if you need to know who they are, like you can use OpenID to get that stuff back. But Matt's 100% right. We, we aren't using ID tokens, we're using access tokens. So, 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 so um, David, previously we were using the um, OpenID stuff because we were overloading the OAuth flows by creating a resource while doing, while contacting the authorization server, the AS. And that is so counter to how an authorization server is meant to be that actually I think we would have got kicked out of the IETF community if we told them we were doing that. Um, so we basically, that's why we've gotten to this resource-based open payments thing, because that's sort of how um, the, 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 the line between an AS and a resource server is meant to work. Like there's an underlying resource that you want to access and the AS just says whether you, that the user is giving or some sort of system is giving permission to access those resource servers. And when the resource server gets an access token for a specific resource, it'll go off and speak to the AS and say, what were the details about you giving authorization to, to this token? Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> uh, I'm just, it, it seems like in, at least in, in the shop, the 
there's an open ID scope, but I don't see like there's a there's a jot with an embedded interledger plane. Um, so I don't like the scope actually ends up being the thing. I don't see any real like open ID connect stuff in there. Um, so. Yeah. So so the the thinking is that in the future, you know, when you when you request authorization, let's say as a merchant for a payment, currently what you're going to do is you're going to request authorization, and and one of the scopes you will request. Uh, author against either scopes or claims. I forget where we put this, but is the URL of the mandate. Another one you could ask for is open ID. And so what that means is you asking the user to, to authorize two things, authorize the wallet to um, you, you're asking the user to consent to the mandate, but you are also asking the user to consent to the wallet sharing their details with you. Um, Cause that's basically what open ID for right is you go back to an AS and you say hey I want access to an ID token for this user and the AS gets consent from the user and the user says yes and so then in the response is this ID token and the ID token is a is a JWT which contains details about the user and it's signed by the AS um, so I think like when we start playing around with the when we, we're not playing around like when we start needing to full sort of gaps in a regulatory perspective where you say, I want to do a P2P payment, but for my wallet to send that, it needs to know the identity of the receiver um, or something like that. There would be a consent flow where the receiver actually says to the wallet, yes, you can share my name and let's say email address and maybe even physical address as part of an ID token back with the, uh, back with the sender. And that would use something like OpenID Connect. I do, I do see that now. So on Rafiki, shop, which I think is outdated. It's not, it's not Eats or Flips. Yeah, there's a bit to catch up there. By the way, um, the most up-to-date demos on the Rafiki shop are subdomain based. I know Matt, if you want to yeah. post the links in there, um, not this, the, not the ones in the sub directories. I'm sorry, on Charles been waiting um, patiently. Um, Matt, did you have something to add on that topic or can I, can I, yeah, just quickly, it the things you're referring to all, all the, the, the things have been updated. So the new flows are, don't show anything because it all happens using the APIs. Um, so eats.rafiki.shop and click.rafiki.shop, um, both happen like they don't show any of that other stuff that you yeah. the demos. Yeah, that's what I typically use. Sometimes I just go back to shop to see the actual tokens, uh, just because it's easier for like developing but, or you know investigating. But it sounds like you're saying the shop, you figure out shop, uh, that whole flow is maybe not how it works anymore. So like that, that in and of itself is outdated. Is that correct? Um, they. Yes. There is there is an updated flow, um, but it's hosted under a subdomain. So one of the things we did was move all of the um, all of the different entities are now hosted at different at different origins. So you know eats.rafiki.shop, flicks.rafiki.shop, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, so that we could intentionally um, break them if there were cross-origin things that we hadn't considered. So everything is cross-origin now intentionally to make sure that if browsers are cutting off cross-origin stuff, it, it breaks and we can fix it. Cool. Yeah, so I, I think I'm good. I can, you know, introspect the browser and see what tokens are getting passed. Okay, cool. Anshel, thanks for waiting. Uh, um, sorry, uh, you had a question. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I guess most of it is answered by you, but um, I just wanted to make sure that I understand it correctly. It's just the authorization that is happening right now, and not the authentication. Is the assumption that authentication is um, through, let's say, if they are, if the sender and uh, like the two wallets are talking on HTTPS, that's how they are authenticating each other. So the wallets authenticating each other is different yeah. to the user authenticating sure. to their wallet. I, which one are you most interested in? The user authenticating um, to the wallet. 
So, so that would be up to the wallet. So like as a user, um, I visit, let's say the eats.rafiki shop. Um, I put in my payment pointer. I get redirected back to my wallet. It's up to my, my wallet to authenticate me and figure out who I am. So that could be login with username and password. Could be that it uses an existing session cookie. Um, that's kind of up to, yeah, that's up to the, that's up to the wallet. Um, in terms of authentication between the two entities. So in OAuth, like role, in terms of how OAuth roles are defined, we're talking about the client authenticating with the AS. Um, that's not super well defined for this use case in OAuth. Um, Matt, I assume we're doing uh, like a client credentials auth still. I can't remember what's, what the implementation is. Yeah, correct. So basically it's client, client credentials uh, between the, the, the AS and the client. Um, the client in this case is the one requesting authorization. So like normally the merchant. So basically, if I, as a merchant, have an access token and I present it to the wallet, um, the wallet, how does the wallet authenticate me is my question. Like, how, do, so, how, do, how yeah. does the wallet know that I am the one, like, I have this authorization token, but who am I? Correct. So, so, well, go ahead, Matt. No, so Anshul, you, you're stepping onto the landmine of what's being discussed on the OAuth groups right now, which is called, um, I think they're basically trying to deal with this, that even if you've got an access token, how do you identify, how do you know that the person who's got the token actually is the person that should have it? Um, there, there's a lot of competing information or competing specs at the moment with IETF to solve that. Um, I, think it's, it's, I think it's called Depop, if you want to look it up. Um, basically, the idea is uh, you can ping me on Slack and I'll try send you some info. But basically, it, it is quite a big problem. But any system that basically has the access tokens generally has the other information to prove who you are. So it becomes quite difficult to tie the two. Um, but, but there is work being done on it. But we haven't implemented it because it's, it's sort of like out of scope for now. We're trying to solve first base things and then layer it up. Yeah, so I would, the way I would classify that is kind of an ecosystem thing. I mean, obviously, we don't want a world where every merchant has to go and get client credentials and uh, establish a relationship with every wallet. Um, and there are ways to solve that. Don did a bit of work on a thing called IndieAuth, where they, it's, it's kind of light authentication using um, where the client identifier is actually their website URL. And so what the AS does is goes back to the website itself and does some checks against the website to make sure like the sort of close the loop that the person pretending to the way be what the person claiming to be that website actually is. Um, there's, there's different ways to solve it. Like there's an, also an interesting development around open ID connect and a sort of federated model there, which may be the way it's done. Um, but in our opinion, like those things are gonna evolve more as part of the ecosystem anyway. So the way we see this panning out is anybody who's participating in the Interledger network is gonna have, just because of regulatory stuff, is gonna have to have some sort of you know, legal identity and be able to share that with others. And whatever system we end up using for that, hopefully it's a nice sort of decentralized mechanism of doing it, um, is, uh, is something we can then leverage for this. So, you know, if a merchant is interacting with a wallet for the first time, that wallet can go off to whatever system we as a community end up landing on and saying, okay, I've got a request from this merchant who's claiming to be this. How do I verify who they are and make sure that they're actually a legitimate participant in the Interledger network? Um, I see, okay. So there are, so like the summary, there are ways to do client authentication with the AS. Um, right now we're basically hard coding it. The clients, in other words, the merchants have uh, credentials that they have to submit to the AS when they do authentication requests. But there are a bunch of initiatives to try and make that more dynamic, dynamic client registration or um, leverage sort of federated net identity networks and so on. And, and our plan is to 
use those as they evolve and become a, bit, a little bit more uh, mature. I, I'm just wondering, can't we use something like PKI here? There is a mechanism that uses PKI, but, and we've explored that a bit. So um, the, the challenge is, so, so we're about to run out of time, but let me, let me be very quick on this one. So imagine now you as a user are faced with a consent screen at your wallet. So I'm, you know, I'm suddenly looking at a screen that's hosted by GitHub, who are my wallet. And that screen says, uh, you know, Bob's hardware wants to debit $10 from your account. Now it shows a logo of Bob's hardware and I recognize it because that's the site I was shopping on two minutes ago. But is it really, is the server that has contacted GitHub really Bob's hardware? And how do we know that? And it's the same problem they had to try and they try to solve with EV certs, for example. So even if there is PKI and there's a, you know, a certificate that belongs to a specific domain, um, it's still a user that's looking at like some sort of user interface that has to say, yes, I authorize this entity. And that's like, that's, you know, one of the fundamental challenges with payments online is um, tying that back to something like a, a public key infrastructure or something that can't be spoofed. And, and so, for example, one of the big challenges with EV certs is people would spoof, for example, PayPal by registering a company in another country with the same name and then get a legitimate, uh, you know, EV cert under the name of PayPal or PayGal or something that users just wouldn't spot the difference. And then they would be able to pretend to be PayPal. So like that's a bigger problem than just open payments. But uh, it, I, I think that's a problem area we would welcome, you know, input and help from people on, on figuring out that that's probably the best way to sort of, uh, visualize the challenges you're looking at a consent screen you want to consent a payment to someone how do you make sure that the consent you're giving is to the right entity and how did they cryptographically verify themselves to the your wallet who's now showing you that screen that's that's the challenge right yeah i guess that requires a longer conversation <laughs> yeah, maybe I think a good one for the next call. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a really difficult challenge. And as Matt says, there's a lot going on at IETF at the moment around OAuth, around um, future versions of OAuth, uh, using OAuth for these use cases. So if anyone's interested, definitely join in. We're planning to attend, maybe not the next IETF convening, but the one in July. Um, and present some of what we've been doing and, and use cases and, and you know be more active participants in that group. Um, yeah, I guess I'm also visiting uh, the one in July for some of my drafts, so maybe we can. Great, cool. See you in um, Madrid. In common. Until the, the PKI stuff is also gonna be handy for the routing, so it might be worthwhile discussing with David. I know we've discussed this previously, um, but basically routing also potentially need some way to, to make better than how, Yeah, exactly. So currently, um, like routing on the internet has huge issues where people can just lie and broadcast whatever they want. Um, there is some like ways to get around that, but not everybody's implemented it. And we when the ILP summit, we did discuss ways to do this. We had a, a talk. There is actually a video of that talk. Um, and th this is like, it, it's a problem there that's very similar. It's like, how do we do this sort of distributed identity that federates down it, it definitely feels like something if we come up with a solution for how do we uh, identify legitimate people on the network that it could be used for both routing and this use case uh -huh, yeah like the same the same infrastructure so it would probably be some sort of public key infrastructure but specifically like how it's routed you know it's probably not going to be certificate authorities it'll be something else um, I don't know distributed. Um, how it's rooted and how it works. Yeah. 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 So definitely a, that's a big topic and one we, we definitely interested in, in figuring out. We run out of time. I apologize. It was a, yeah, it was a great chat. Um, Sabine, we didn't have a chance to talk about podcasting the, these calls. Um, maybe we can take that offline and we can between the two of us present a solution in a couple of weeks. If you, if you have ideas. That sounds good. Uh, I mean, one thing I, I wanted to get here was just the sentiment of 
whether like anybody's interested in having this as a podcast because if it's just me then i guess there's no sense in creating this <laughs> i i think if it's not difficult we should just do it like zoom definitely the zoom does allow me to just download the audio file so if it's as simple as just downloading it and putting it somewhere every two weeks uh and there's a feed for those that fits the right format for people to consume through a podcast um app I'm happy to do it, even if it's just for you, Sydney. Oh, thank you. But that, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the easiest way of doing it. Okay. It's like a minimalistic well, if, word. If, if you know of a way to do that easily, um, and all you need from me is the audio files, then let's chat and I can, we can do the last few, put them up and, and see, um, see if we can automate it in some way to make it, make it simple going forward. Perfect. Thanks. Cool. Thanks everyone. Um, the next call will be in two weeks. So that puts us on the 22nd of January. I will endeavor to get the agenda out a little bit sooner next time. I apologize. Um, and I have found a way that I think I can send out a recurring invite that is possible for me to sort of cancel specific meetings um, hosted by Zoom. So I'll do a test on that and, and send that out to you all, um, hopefully in the next probably tomorrow, but otherwise early next week. Thanks again and chat in a couple of weeks. Ciao.